here for you.
celebrate you today, Lord. Thank you. We say thank you. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Uh, I know, you're like, what are you doing up this early, Eric? We, we, we had another 10 minutes of worship in us, and I just, again, we are trying a new rhythm for us as a church, because really, for, um, for me, the message is not the most important part of, of this time together. You did not come here, I hope, with the expectation that the best thing you would get, get out of this time is a good message. I hope it's not bad. But um, it, the point of this is not for you to simply come and listen to one person's perspective on the Bible. The goal of our time together is to both connect with one another as well as to connect with our, our God. And that's the most important thing is that you would have an encounter with the living God and that you would be transformed through that. Information doesn't lead to transformation. Relationship does. And so toward that end, what we are doing is we are having a very brief kind of intro. I'm going to get into the message, and then we're going to have an extended time of response at the end where my hope is, as we saw last week, God can really do a number in our hearts during that time as conversations are had between you and the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're doing today. Before I dive into our message, though, I want to let you know of a couple of things coming up. We, it's really funny how, like, for two years we had nothing going on and now all of a sudden it's like oh my goodness we have something every single night I was just like Gary's like ah, you know all I have to do is hang out with the church I don't have anything else. I can't even be with my neighbors right just kidding uh, so on Thursday for some of us we're going to be going fishing I'm really looking forward to getting out there on the water with you and just the time we're going to have on the boat together on Friday from, we, we said 4 to 9 p.m. last time for our, our um, beach bonfire. I think that nobody showed up until 5. So let's just say 5 to 9 this Friday at Huntington Beach. We are going to be hanging out uh, it, right where Brooker's dead ends, right into Huntington Beach. We are going to be at that first fire ring. There's volleyball nuts right next door. We had so much fun this last time. We had Gary out there with his shovel warming up pieces of pizza for people. We invented a new thing. We put, do uh, we put a marshmallow inside a donut and then heated it up, and it's glorious. So we'll bring, somebody bring more uh, donuts, and we'll do this again. Um, and, and we're just going to have a great time of, of being together outside, getting to know one another. So for those of you who have family that you want to invite, invite them to come along. For those of you who have friends, neighbors, that you're like, I want to invite them to come and meet some of my friends, but I don't necessarily know that they want to come to the church. Well, guess what? The church isn't a building, it's a people. The church is going to be at the beach on Friday night. Invite them to come along. And then, gentlemen, this Saturday at 7 a.m. across the street in the family room, we're having our men's breakfast. So if you, want to ha if you like to eat, come along. If you like to connect with other guys, come along. If you like to just kind of be able to process what's going on in your life with other guys who are also seeking God, come along, 7 a.m. All right? With that, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we're going to dive into Scripture. Father God, I invite you to glorify yourself through this time. Holy Spirit, we invite you to permeate this place. I pray that you would begin to work on each of our hearts, myself, my brothers and sisters in this room, my brothers and sisters who are watching online. Would you be with us as we open your word? Would you speak to our hearts? I invite you to help yourself to what I prepared. If there's stuff in here that's not going to be helpful, would you excise it from my mind? And if there are things that you want to talk to us about that aren't on here, God, either take me there or, or, or just go ahead and talk to, to my brothers and my sisters' hearts directly. Because at the end of the day, we are not here to listen to me. We're here to connect and commune with you. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. All right, turn with me to John chapter 13. Um, 
as you do that, I want to remind you of where we've been so we have a little bit of context for those of you who are just jumping in mid-conversation. Last week, I started with a question, and that question is, if you knew you only had a couple of hours to live, how would you invest that time? And I don't say spend that time, because really, I think at that point, we recognize the value of that time. So how would you invest it? Who would you spend it with? What would you do? What would you want to communicate to them? I know for myself, even though this is kind of a philosophical question, for me, the answer is I would spend it with my family, my wife, but more, most importantly, my boys. And I would want to remind them who they are. I would re- want to remind them of how deeply I love them. And I would, re- I would want to remind them of the core values that I have tried to, imperfectly admittedly, uh, tried to impart to them so that they could continue to live out of that. That's, that's, I believe, how I would probably invest that time. But the beauty of, of John's gospel is we don't have to wonder what Jesus, how Jesus would answer that question. Jesus showed us, because from chapter 13 to chapter 17, we get to see Jesus interacting with his disciples, spending the last couple of hours of his freedom before he's arrested, you know, tried, and crucified for us. He spends it with them, and in that time, we get to see what matters most to him. These are his last investments before going to the cross. And as we saw last week, it, he begins by modeling for them, rather than just simply telling them, hey guys, I want you to use whatever position of leadership you have to serve others, he decides to show them. Because he knows who he is. He knows that he is their rabbi, that he is their Lord. He knows that his, his identity is established because of his relationship with God, not because of how other people feel about him. And so because of that, he takes the posture of a servant and he begins to wash their feet. And it's scandalous to them. For him, he's trying to show you, if you lead, it doesn't mean you get to be in charge and everybody underneath you has to serve you. In fact, in the kingdom of God, that whole paradigm is flipped on its head. And those who lead ultimately have the most people to serve. The higher you climb, the more responsibility to care for others' needs that you have. And this is what he's trying to impart to them, but they're scandalized by it. So much so that Peter's not, you know, it can't remain quiet. He goes, Jesus, you can't wash my feet. Like, this is not acceptable. And Jesus tells him, unless you allow me to wash you, unless you let me serve you, you have no part with me. And the point that he's getting at is that Peter's and the rest of the disciples, as well as our relationship with God, is not based upon our own effort or our own ability to clean ourselves up. It is 100% based upon the gift of grace. And the cross is a reminder to us that our standing with God isn't determined by our effort or how well we follow him or how many good deeds we've done to offset the bad things that we've done. Our standing with God is 100% contingent upon his grace for us, and that levels the playing field. We are all in relationship with God because of the gift of grace, and unless we, unless we embrace that gift, we can have no part with Christ or the Father. And then after he's done washing their feet, he sits back down and goes, guys, I would imagine you probably don't have any idea what I've just done for you. You call me your Lord. You call me your teacher, and that's true. That's who I am. Now that I, your teacher and your Lord, have served you, I want to call you to serve others. Not as a prerequisite to my love, but as a response to it. 
If you are truly following me, then you will do what I have done. After that, and, th- and we're going to skip over this section. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. After that, Jesus, he has some more stuff to talk with him about. The first thing he wants to do is call out the elephant in the room, though. One of his disciples, a guy named Judas Iscariot, is having second thoughts. Judas started following Jesus because he thought that Jesus was the Messiah like the world talked about the Messiah. The, the coming king who was going to use military might to throw off the heavy yoke of Rome, to kind of take over the throne of Herod and reestablish Israel as the preeminent nation on the world. That's what they thought. That's what Judas thought. And if that was the case, then following Jesus was in his best interest. Because at the end of the day, Judas wasn't following Jesus for Jesus' sake. He wasn't worshiping or ordering his life around Jesus because he loved Jesus or believed in what Jesus was doing regardless. He was following Jesus and worshiping Jesus because of what he thought he could get out of it. And the moment that Jesus starts talking about the fact that his trajectory is not going to necessarily lead to the throne of Herod, but rather to the cross, Judas starts having second thoughts. He starts going, oh crud, did I just hitch my wagon to the wrong war horse? Is this a peace pony, not a war horse? Like, uh, not good with this. And so Judas begins not only to have second doubts, but decides I need to try to salvage this. I need to try to get out of this relationship the most I can. And so for him, as he begins to recognize that what he thought was going to lead to the throne of, of, of Herod is ultimately leading to the cross, he says, how can I sell out for, to the highest bidder? And Jesus knows this. He knows what's in Judas's heart. And as much as it pains him that one of his guys is having second thoughts, he looks straight at Judas. Because he also recognizes this, that as much as Judas is making this decision on his own, Judas's decision to betray Jesus actually advances the Father's plans, his redemptive plans. Jesus knows that perhaps he could have convinced Judas not to do it. And maybe hit the snooze button on this salvation story. But he's, he trusts the Father more than he fears what's to come, even though he absolutely fears what's to come. And so he looks straight at Judas. He says, what you plan to do, do it quickly. Get it over with. And Judas gets up, and he goes into the night to go sell Jesus for a handful of silver. And that's where we're going to pick up the story is after Judas leaves in verse 31 of chapter 13. When Judas was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man, and this is him referring to himself, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And I, I always find it interesting, the way that Jesus interprets greatness and glory versus the way that the world does. Because we would say that greatness is the higher you climb, the more respect and accolades and likes you get from other people, the more people sing your praises. For Jesus... True greatness is serving others. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of all. We would also, by the world standard, define glory as, as I mean, I, I think of, of the, the U.S. hockey team beating Russia, right? The glory in that moment of overcoming a foe that everybody said you couldn't possibly do it. And you battled back and you've won. And in that moment, the, just the absolute accolades that people give you, that's glory. From the world's perspective. Conquering, that's glory from the world's perspective. And in Jesus' mind, 
glory for him, glorification for him is doing the Father's will, even if that means an ignominious death on a cross, on a criminal's cross. I'm, his glory is that Judas has just left the room to go light the wick that's going to blow up into him bleeding out on a criminal's cross. That's glory from his perspective. Not because suffering equals glory, but because he's doing the Father's will even though it terrifies him. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son of Man in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, my, 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 this is kind of the, the way that a rabbi would refer to his closest disciples, my, my little children, I'm only going to be with you a little longer. You're going to look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you can't come. And into that vacuum, he, he gives them a new command, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In other words, I'm about to go. I'm gonna, you don't know where I'm, you know, you can't go with me right now. But in my absence, I want you to love one another because this will be a testimony to the world that you are my disciples. Now, this is really important. It's, it's, it's a new articulation of something that is very old and has been the constant of God. Remember, when Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? He broke it into two parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law, everything basically hinges upon that. It gets boiled down to that. Now he's looking at his disciples and saying, the way you treat one another will be the testimony to the world around you that you are my disciples. Now, ironically... As important as that verse is, the disciples basically disregard it because they're still focused on something he said before that. Kind of like when you and your sweetie are having an argument and, and you say something that is so profound and so true and you're like, this is, this is going to win the argument. And your spouse is like, you said always like two minutes ago. It's not always. You know it's not always. And you realize like they, she, he or she has not been listening to you for the last two minutes and has completely missed the point because they're fo focused on a word you misused. Hypothetically speaking, of course. This never happens, actually, in any pastor's marriage, for sure. Um, all they can hear from Jesus in this moment is that he's going and they can't follow. And so Peter naturally leans into that. Jesus has just kind of given him the thesis for how they are to live, and he completely overlooks it. Verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? That's all he heard. Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow later. Peter asked him, Lord, why can't I follow you? I, I would lay down my life for you, regardless of where you go. I will follow you. Can I just say that I believe Peter? I believe 100% that in that moment, Peter was absolutely convinced in his heart that regardless of where Jesus was going to go, he would follow, no questions asked. The only problem is, intense and actually following through in the moment are two different things. And Jesus knows Peter. Jesus knows that when Peter is put on the spot, there's going to be a moment where he's going he's gonna to balk and he's going to do whatever it takes to kind of get out of the focus. And sure enough, so Jesus calls him out. He says, will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you're going to disown me three times. This isn't a condemnation of Peter so much as just a reminder, hey, Peter, you, you, you think that. But it's going to get harder before it gets better. And here's a beautiful thing about Peter. 
I love the man for this. Peter's one of those guys who never, ever got tired of the taste of his own shoe leather, right? He was constantly opening his mouth and inserting his foot. He was always saying whatever came to, to his mind, he was passionate, even if his intent and his follow-through were not necessarily the same thing. But he was very committed in his heart. And sure enough, G Peter would disown Jesus within 24 hours. But Jesus knew, you can't follow me to the cross right now. That's what he was talking about. Where I'm going, you can't follow, but you'll follow me later. Peter wasn't supposed to give his life alongside Jesus yet. But some three decades later, Peter had matured a little bit to the point where when he's asked again, you, you keep claiming Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. If you are not willing to renounce him, you're going to lose your life. And Peter was unwilling to renounce Jesus. And so about 30 years later, Peter did follow in Jesus' footsteps. And he was crucified. But even then, he did it in pure Peter fashion. He had to do it his own way. Because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same way Jesus was. So he asked to be crucified upside down. <laughs> I love him because of just how real he is. But, but here's the thing. Jesus' disciples were scared. Jesus, we're following you. Where are you going to go that we can't go with you? We want to be with you wherever you happen to be. And so Jesus now pivots and begins to comfort them about his statement that he's about to leave. So let's go ahead and, and move on into chapter 14. It says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that weren't true, I would have told you that I, uh, I, I would not have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. Now, some of you who grew up studying the King James Version, memorizing the King James Version, may have memorized this a slightly different way. You might have memorized it. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many mansions, right? Did some of you remember that or some of your translations maybe have that? And that has given us this impression that what Jesus is going to prepare takes a really long time because it's really opulent, it's really beautiful, as if Jesus is focusing on the, the finery of what, what he's going to prepare for us. I mean, you're going to have golden faucets, and, and the glass is going to be made out of pure diamond. I don't, I don't know what you've heard, but I've heard a lot of really wacky things about what the mansions in heaven are going to look like that he's going to prepare a place for us. And I would simply suggest to you that that is actually a, a way that the translation has done us a disservice. Because back in the 17th century, when the King James Version was being translated, the word mansions didn't mean for them what it meant to us today. When we hear mansions, we think big, opulent place that kind of has so much space around it that you're really kind of distant from everyone around you, from all your neighbors, right? It's like you think the Hamptons or something, like these big estates. And that's not at all what that word meant to them when they were translating it. For them, mansion did not even mean something opulent. It was simply a dwelling place. It's come to mean something different in the 21st century than it did in the 17th century. And this causes many of us to emphasize the wrong part of what Jesus is saying. We begin to think that Jesus is saying, I'm going to go make something really nice for you. And that is more of a, re a reflection of the 
the American dream of wanting to always move up in something nicer than it is the heart of what Jesus is saying. His focus is not about the place so much as the proximity to him and to the Father. We often talk about how home is wherever our family is, right? That doesn't matter. You could be dropped anywhere in the world so long as your family, whether that's your blood relations or your friendships, so long as they're with you, that's home to you. That's why I feel at home when I get to be with us on Sunday mornings because this is where my family is. But it's not about the space. Guys, we could be meeting out in the parking lot and feel just as much family. We can be meeting down in, in Huntington Beach on a Friday evening and feel just as much family. In fact, more so because I won't be the only one talking at that point. In the same way that we say home is where our family is, I would suggest to you that for Jesus, heaven is where we are in you, it combined with, connected with, in communion with him and the Father. For him, it is not about the place so much as about the proximity and the opportunity for relationship. Does this make sense? Because that's the point he's making. Let me read it again to you now. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. There's lots of space there. If that weren't so, I wouldn't have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you might also be where I am. It's all about proximity and relationship to Jesus and to the Father. You know the way to the place that I'm going. But for Jesus' disciples, they don't have a clue what he's talking about. So they're willing to kind of admit, we don't know the way because we don't know where you're going. Thomas says just that, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, then you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a verse that many of us, I mean, it, it ranks right up there with John 3.16 as one of those verses that many of us memorize from a very early age. It's a powerful verse. One that we often will quote to other people. But it's a dangerous verse. Because in a world that likes to say that all truth is relative... That all religions are simply a way to the Father or to the higher spiritual being. This one smacks of exclusivity. If you want to know why there is so much anger and hatred towards the name of Jesus, why, why you can talk in, in schools about lots of other religions, but you cannot talk about Christianity, why the name of Jesus make some people so angry that they will simply stop talking to you and will write you off completely. It's because he says stuff like this. The world would like to treat religion, and by religion I mean any kind of claim to faith, as different flavors of, 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 of ice cream right? All of it ultimately is made from the same stuff. All of it has kind of the same goal in mind. They're all kind of signposts pointing us to a higher power. None has a, a, a stronger claim to truth because, let's be honest, even for people who are not, don't believe that there is a higher power, they think that religions 
are, are just all kind of the same sort of crutch that people use. And so, hey, you guys can think whatever the heck you want and, and live however you want so long as it doesn't either A, impinge on other people's freedoms, or B, you cannot tell other people they're wrong because you're wrong. Right? I mean, this is the mindset that people bring to it, that truth is relative and that each perspective is simply a signpost pointing to the same thing, just a different way. But here's the difference between Jesus and the way that he was suggesting and the way that the rest of the religions take, because all other religions and all other religious figures didn't claim to divinity, didn't claim exclusivity. They simply said, this is the way that you reach what, what higher power we focus on. This is how you should live in order to have a relationship with said higher power, whatever, however they articulate that. They are simply acting as guides pointing. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus instead points to himself and doesn't say, I am a way, or I am the, the signpost pointing you towards the right way. He says, I am the way, the only way. And this is where it becomes exclusive. He is either telling the truth or he is an, he's an utter liar or completely deluded. You can't have it both ways. And Jesus knew this. In fact, Jesus warned his disciples that in this world, he wasn't actually going to be coming to bring peace between people. That he would actually bring division. This is from Luke chapter 12. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. To separate fathers from children and mo mothers from daughters. Not because the goal was to divide people, but simply he recognized that what, how, who he was and what he would claim would be divisive. People would either love him or they would hate him. People would either run to him or they would run from him. There was no in-between. And I will say that throughout history, there's a lot of people who have worked really hard to try to soften Jesus down, tried to kind of soften these statements so that we could treat him as nothing more than a nice Mr. Rogers who just wants everybody to get along. But you don't crucify Mr. Rogers. And Jesus was not simply claiming to be a kind person who understood the heart of God and would simply model that so that people could understand the way that they should live. No, he was claiming to be the only way to reach God, the only door that you can walk through to have a relationship with the Father, the relationship we were created for. And if you're unwilling to run to Jesus, then you're unwilling to have relationship with the Father. End of story. It's no wonder that some people hate the name of Jesus so much because of his claim to exclusivity as the only way to God. But he didn't just claim to be the way. He claimed to be the truth. And the world would like to suggest to you that all truth is relative, right? What you think and what you feel about the world and about your place in it is acceptable for you. So long as you don't try to tell other people that the way that they think and that the way that they feel is wrong. So long as you allow other people to think what they think, you can think what you think, regardless of whether they think you're an idiot for thinking that, right? 
I said idiot. I'm sorry. That was rude of me. Um, but here's the thing. Because if I'm honest, there is, there is a war going on for truth right now. It's been going on for the last couple of years. It's, got, it's a war that's probably been going on for centuries. We've become more aware of it over the last couple of years. As, as claims to truth have been called into question and, and, and our sources of who are our truth tellers that we can trust have been called into question, truth has been called into question. And it's hard to know who to trust. It's hard to know where to turn to for truth anymore. But if Jesus is who he claimed to be, and if Jesus is who John, at the beginning of his gospel, claimed he was, namely, and this is the first verse of John, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the, the, the divine creative power of God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things that were created were made through him, and nothing that has been created was made apart from him. If that is true, and Jesus is the divine, creative voice of God through which the world was spoken into existence, and the power that still holds it together, then Jesus is actually a source of truth. And we can think whatever we want about life, we can think that the sky is green, even if, if it looks blue to everybody else. We can think that things that, that some people say is right are wrong, and we can think that some things that the Bible suggests or some things that Jesus say are not truthful because it simply doesn't fit in our modern sensibilities. But if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then he is ultimately the divine deciding factor of what is truth and what is not and we can disregard it and we can run from it at our own peril i am the way i am the truth the final word on what is true and i am the life he's not just talking about Life in the sense of you won't die physically. Um, we just had a funeral yesterday for my friend Kilby's dad. He died in the middle of COVID, and this is the first time that they were able to actually celebrate his father's life. Jesus saying, I'm the life, isn't a suggestion that we won't taste death in the physical way. He's talking about something deeper. You and I were created for relationship with God. That's, that's the message of, of the entire Bible, including Genesis 1 and 2. We are told from the very beginning that you and I and every other being that has breath in our lungs were created to have relationship with God. We are created in his image to be co-laborers with him in caring and cultivating his creation. But we're told in Genesis chapter 3 that that relationship has been uh, impacted by the insertion of sin into God's good creation. When Adam and Eve, our most ancient ancestors, reached for the forbidden fruit and ate of it, thinking that it would give them something that the Father had withheld from them, that they had some sort of a deficiency, and this could give them what he hadn't given them, uh, sin 
drove a wedge between our most ancient ancestors and our God. And that sin has continued to drive a wedge between all of humanity and the one whose image we bear and the one who we were created to do life with. And the Bible calls this death. Yes, physical death followed years later. Adam and Eve and every other human being that's lived ultimately tastes physical death. But they died the moment that that fruit touched their lips because they were spiritually separated from the Father. That is spiritual death, and that's the death that Jesus came to conquer. Because if death is, is a severing of the relationship with the Father, then life logically flows is the reconnection of that relationship with the Father, the relationship we were made to have. That is the life that is truly life. And that's the message of Scripture, that Jesus didn't just come so that we wouldn't have our bodies break down. They still do. So that we wouldn't ever have to either be buried or cremated. We still are. The reason Jesus came the reason Jesus suffered on the cross, the reason he gave his life is to restore us back into relationship with the Father. Something that we get to taste here and now through the, through the impartation of the Holy Spirit. That's something we're going to look at next week because that's where he's going next. But something that we will get to experience even beyond the grave. An eternal communion with the Father. Initially, in heaven, wherever that happens to be, but ultimately back here on this planet that has been restored, that has been scoured of, of the sin and brokenness and the pain. And when we get to the end of the story, like this is where we're headed in Revelation chapter 20 and 21, the picture is of us communing with the Father in a garden city, much like Eden, where he is present. And, and, and the, the, the tree of life is right there with the river flowing through it and the father and the son are present with the people of God and we get to co-labor alongside of him in caring and, 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 and curating his creation. It's a beautiful picture. There's no more tears, no more pain, no more oxygen that you have to carry around, no more cancer, no more freaking COVID, no more face masks, no more vaccines needed. Amen. I'm in. We're just not there yet. We're in the in-between right now. And Jesus came to give us access to life that is truly life. So he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The world might suggest that there's lots of ways to God. Lots of ways to be spiritually enlightened. I got to tell you, there's only one, and it's me. You want relationship with the Father? You have relationship with him through me. I am the final word on truth, regardless of what the world suggests. I am the only source of life that is truly life. As much as the world would like to suggest that there's lots of other things that you, you until you have this, you haven't lived. Lots of other fruits that they try to offer up and saying this is what you need in order to be complete. And Jesus is saying, everything you're looking for can only be found in me. And this wasn't in my notes, but let me just lean in here for a second. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, and that, <laughs> that separation begins, the very next thing that the Father does is he curses Adam and Eve. 
He curses their relationship with one another. That there will be kind of this power struggle between husband and wife. He curses the woman in her, in her childbearing and her child rearing, uh, Robin's daughter Sarah, in giving birth yesterday. Robin and Mark became grandparents, which is super exciting. But even in that, there's pain in childbearing, and there's pain. I'm a parent of a 13-year-old and a 9-year-old. I can attest, there's pain in child rearing. And then he curses the ground, so that from the sweat and toil of our brow, we will have to eke our existence out. So he curses the work of our hands, and you go, what an unloving, mean father he is to punish his kids. They sinned, and all of us suffer because of it. Thanks a whole heck of a lot. Except, that's looking at it from a simply punitive perspective, kind of like how my kids probably feel when I take away their devices because they've been really disrespectful to one another or to us, right? And they say, what a mean parent. You took away my fun, and I said, no, 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 I'm removing those things so you can actually try to work on relationship, because that's way more important, right? A lot of times, discipline seems unloving, when in reality, in the long view, it is the most loving thing I can do as a parent, because I don't want to raise jerks, personally. I can't speak for any of you, but I don't want to raise jerks. I want to raise sons who are kind to one another and to, to other adults and things like that. I would suggest to you that the curses in Genesis 3 were not simply punitive acts of an angry father lashing out at his image bearers for disobedience. I would actually suggest to you that they were the acts of a loving father who recognized that humanity's natural tendency is to constantly reach for other things to be able to fill this part in our life where we feel that we're not enough, that he's not enough. And so we will reach for things like finding our identity in relationships, romantic relationships in particular, finding our identity in raising and rearing children, or finding our identity in our work, as if that somehow defines us. And what he did in that moment of those curses was he cut a God-shaped hole out of every single image bearer. He frustrated the very things that we will have a natural tendency to run to for identity. And he says, this will never, ever satisfy you. You will never find fulfillment and you will never find completion in those things. You will only find it in me. And yet we continue to try to run from relationship to relationship to relationship, seeking to be complete. Because as Jerry Maguire says, you complete me and damn it, I want that. I just said, darn it. Look to relationships to complete us. They will never complete us. We look to our children to validate us. Guilty. They will never validate us. Please don't put that pressure on your kids because they will never live up to it. And if you look at me as one of your kids, I'm looking at like 12 of you moms in here, I will let you down, so please don't put that pressure on me. Thank you very much. And if you are the, 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 the work of your hands, the things that you run at, the things that you do in order to prove that you are worthwhile, you're spinning your wheels in the mud. It will never satisfy you. You will never climb high enough. You will never achieve greatness enough to be able to rest 
it will be a momentary high, a momentary victory. And then that award goes on the wall and you go on to the next victory. And it is this endless cycle of performance. Some of you are caught up in it. Some of you have survived it for too long and you just said, I'm done. You retired from it. Some of you are gearing up for it. We will never find our identity. We will never find our fulfillment in our effort. And that, as much as it is a product of God frustrating the very good earth that he created, he did it as an act of love because he recognizes that at the end of the day, the only way that we will ever find the life that he intended for us to live is with him. And the only way that we can ever access that life is through Jesus. There is no other way. And so we're left with a question. How now shall we live? I'm just going to cut the second half of my message out. We're just going to lean in here this morning. How now shall we live? Where do we go from here? Each of us has to ultimately answer this question for ourselves. Do I trust Jesus? Do I believe that he is the only way? He either is the only way or he's nothing but a liar or a lunatic. Pick one, but you don't get both. He's not Mr. Rogers. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say he was a really wise moral leader, but he was, he, he was kind of mistaken about the exclusivity of his truth claim. And all roads lead to God. He's just one of them. If that's your truth, then he's a liar and you have no part with him. You either trust him and submit to him and order your life around him, which is uh, the word we've been using for that is worship. When we talk about being people who worship, it is not simply being people who sing. That is a very, very small sliver of what worship is. When we talk about worship, we are talking about ordering our lives around that which we value the most. And Jesus, by the way, modeled this for us. Jesus will go on in verse, let's see here, in verse 10 of chapter 4 to talk about how he has modeled worship through the way he's ordered his life around the Father. He says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who's doing his work. In other words, I have so completely ordered my life around the Father that I don't even say whatever comes to my mind. I say only what the Father has laid on my heart to say. I only do what I see the Father doing. And that means that when you look at me, you get the clearest picture of the Father you will ever have until you're standing face to face with him. And if you truly worship Jesus, here's the remarkable thing. If you truly begin to order your life around him, that means that we will begin to reflect his heart into the world. We will begin to reflect his values into this world. We will become his disciples. And in so doing, we will become his ambassadors. Well, what does it mean to be a disciple what does it mean to order our life around him? If, it, if we mean that, if we truly mean that, then we'll begin to do the things that he did. And what, he, what did he do? He said in, in John 8, he said, if you're really my disciple, then you'll do what I say. You'll obey my commands. 
And then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, what are his commands? Let's just look at one. The one that he said to his disciples that they didn't have the ears to hear because they were more focused on the fact that he suggested he was going to go away. What is his command? Verse 34 of chapter 13. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I was planning on really leaning into that. Guys, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. We'll, 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 we'll circle back around when we have an opportunity to talk more about what this looks like. But we have before us this morning a decision. Do I believe? Do I trust Jesus? Do I believe he is who he said he was? And he could do what he said he could do, or do I not believe him? Can't have both. If you believe him, then you will run to him. And you will taste the life that is truly life. You will begin to order your life around him. You'll be, uh, you will begin to allow his example to shape your lifestyle. His values will be sh begin to shape your values. We'll begin to choose to love one another as opposed to simply being outspoken against what we're against. Um, okay. Two weeks ago, I was sitting with about 11 other pastors from Costa Mesa. And we were just kind of sharing where each of our, us are at, where our church communities are at. Kind of just being honest about what this season has, has how it has impacted our communities and our own hearts. And all of us felt weary. All of us felt like we were running a marathon that suddenly there was a second marathon that got tacked on at the end. And we're like, oh, holy crud, I was only ready to get through Easter. And now it seems like we're going back into it and it's a lot. So we're, 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 we're fatigued. I would imagine I'm speaking to a whole room full of people who are relatively fatigued because this has been an incredibly emotional run that we've been on. And we're not through it. If anything, things are only going to get more contentious and more divisive and more uncomfortable. And one of the, the sobering things that one of my friends pointed out, but when he said it, it was like, yes, that's absolutely true. He said, you know, in this time we keep talking about oneness, but we don't have oneness, we have sameness. My church is beginning to look like it's full of the same exact people who all think the same, vote the same, and, and, and have the same perspectives on lots of other secondary issues. And it's, I feel like I don't have control over that because there's conversations going on in the hallways that I'm not privy to about very secondary issues, things like race relations or perspectives on COVID or, or political opinions or, and this is the one right now, or vaccines. These points where we disagree and we are so vehement about our perspective that we begin slamming those onto other people. And here's the really sad part in this. We do so from a position of I have done my homework and I know the right answer. And so we speak from a position of confidence and in some ways arrogance. And the person hearing goes, you know what? People think that way. I disagree with that. I'm out. And they go looking for some other church community where people think the same way on those secondary issues. Or, more dangerously and more often than not, 
just don't go to church at all. Because I don't identify with those closed-minded idiots on that particular topic. And there's secondary issues. Let me just remind you of something. Jesus' disciples that he invited, the same guys whose feet he just washed, if you looked at their political pedigree, if you looked at where they came from, they were radically different dudes. Here you have a bunch of fishermen, not really well-educated, not really up on, on, on things. You got fishermen, you got a tax collector, right? Somebody who basically aligned himself with the Roman occupier to steal money from his own people. And you have a zealot, the kind of guy who thinks the only way forward is to shank those who are in charge so that you can get them out. Their blood flowing freely in the streets is the only way forward. And these very different people were part of Jesus' inner circle. If Jesus could lead a bunch of different people like that, gives you, begins to help you understand what the kingdom of God and what the community of Christ is to look like. Guys, we are not family because we agree on everything. I know that if I were to say, hey, this hot button issue, what is your perspective? We would probably have a pretty even split. This hot button issue, we'd maybe have a two-thirds to one-thirds. This hot button issue. And if we started talking about those things, we could rip this beautiful community apart in a heartbeat. We don't do that. Because at the end of the day, the reason we are here is not because we agree on everything, but because we agree on one thing. We are all created in the image of God, created to have relationship with Him. And the only way to access it is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are all pursuing Him to the best of our ability, imperfectly. If you're here because you think there's a bunch of perfect people and you want to be around them, you will be sorely disappointed. Because from the very top leadership all the way down, we are flawed individuals. And the only thing we have going for us is Jesus, who loves us enough to put up with our imperfections, who loves us enough to bleed out for us so that we could be restored back into relationship with the Father. I am not a pastor because I have it all together. I'm a pastor because I'm the first to admit I am a sinner desperately in need of a Savior. And I am incredibly loved even though I don't always feel all that lovable. And, I, and we love others, and we put up with others, and we come alongside others who are different from us because he first loved us. That's what it means to be a family. As dysfunctional as we may be, may we be the kind of people who love one another. All right, I have talked for way too stinking long, and I said I wasn't going to get to the second half, and then I did. So I'm not even a man of my word, dang it. Thank goodness for grace, right? Um, we are going to go into a time of response. And I want to get out of the way so that we can respond. I probably said some things that may have upset you, may have stirred you up a little bit, and that's okay. We are not, I am not here simply to make you comfortable. I'm okay if you're a little bit upset because now you can have a conversation with God. He's the one who can ultimately give you wisdom. Don't take my word for it. Please don't ever take my word for it. Don't take Jeff's word for it. Don't take anybody's word for it other than our Father in heaven and his Holy Spirit in your heart and following Jesus' example. But there are some of us in here this morning who have been trying to 
to earn your way into God's good graces, trying, kind of holding God at arm's length because you're not really sure you want him to be the Lord of your life. You're not really sure you want to follow his example. You kind of want to just kind of check it out for a little bit. Or maybe you're one of those who just goes, he, would have, he wants nothing to do with me. If he knew, he does know, but if, if they knew the, the crap I've done, you're in good company. None of us can stand before God and say, I'm living the right way, or I have lived the right way, or I have it all together, I figured it all out. None of us. Jesus is the way, the only way. Jesus is the only source of truth. Jesus is the only source of the life that we were intended to live. May I implore you, as somebody who has tasted and seen the freedom that comes from loving and following him and resting in his grace and the ways it frees you up to love other imperfect people who are also in process, may I implore you, stop running. Just rest in him. This morning during our response, one of the ways you might choose to respond is maybe to have a conversation with, with Jesus about the things that have been holding you back and the things you've been holding on to, or maybe it's, it's the, your own efforts that you've been resting in and finding your identity in and just laying them down. Maybe you want to come up here and you want to kneel down and just have a conversation with them, or if, if maybe your knees won't allow you to get back up once you do that, come and sit, you know, maybe just you're sitting in your seat or you can come up to the front and sit down. I don't care. I mean, this is one of those things where we're going to turn off the, the fasten seatbelt sign and you will be free to move around the cabin, Okay? Maybe that's one response. Maybe it's a, having a, a conversation with myself or Pastor Jeff in the back or Dee and Connie, if you guys will come over here, and Fippers, if you want to come right over here. Like, if you want to pray with somebody, we're going to have my, my elders and, and, and their wives kind of stationed around the room. Just move towards them and, and, and lean on them and just kind of say, I want you to join me in praying this. And maybe you don't have a clue how to begin that conversation, just come and find one of us. We would love the opportunity to pray with you. For those of you who just need to be reminded this morning that the foundation of your relationship with God is grace, we have communion in the back. And yes, we are going to continue the, the rhythm of once at the end of every month, taking it all together, but I just wanted to make it available as a way you might want to respond this morning. So it's back there if you want it. Grab the elements, go find a quiet corner, have a conversation with God, maybe as a family do it. It's a beautiful reminder for us that our foundation is grace, not effort. The other way that we might respond this morning is simply to hold out the things that we care about. The things that we are worried about for our country, our society, our own family. To hold those out to Jesus and say, God, these matter to me. They matter greatly. I'm, I'm scared about people I care about who think differently than I. But there's this saying, um, in war, the first casualty is the truth. And I would suggest that that's not true. I would suggest to you that in war, the first casualty is actually love. Especially when that war is over truth. And guys, there are some of us who our love for other people has become a casualty of our concern for the direction we see our country going in and for our concern over topics that we have differing perspectives for one another. And I would simply invite you right now to respond by honestly 
confessing those to Jesus and saying, not, not because you don't care about them, but because you care about them so stinking much. Maybe confessing the things that you have begun to feel anger towards others towards. Maybe it's you've been carrying anger in your heart around towards somebody, whether it's a, a, a political leader or a political party or people who think a certain way or act a certain way. And just confessing it. Just, just, just an act of confessing for you. As I read all of these reports of what's going on in Afghanistan right now, and, and the ways that the Taliban are, 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 there's a part of me that gets caught up in the political strategy of who's going to get blamed for this, and why are they getting blamed, and who's, how can we score points with this? It's crap. It's human. It's my human nature. They're rearing its ugly head. And this morning, I was convicted of the fact that, oh my goodness, men and women's lives are being irrevocably altered right now. Freedom that some of my sister image bearers over there have, have experienced are, being, are going to be stripped away. People will lose their lives in this. This is not a game of politics. These are image bearers. And just because it happens beyond the boundaries of America doesn't mean it doesn't matter. That's nationalistic thinking. And I repent of that. So Father God, help yourself to our lives as we go into a time of response. We need to confess the ways in which... Holy Spirit, I invite you to, to lead us and guide us however you see fit right now. At the end of the day, we want to reflect your heart in this world. help yourself to our lives because you are the way you're the source of truth and you are the only one who can give us access to the life that is truly life we long for relationship with our father through you holy spirit help us to taste that now in your holy name amen let's respond together
to see things like you do. God, I look to you. You're where my help comes from. Give me wisdom. You know just what to do.
the sound of his voice seas that are shaken and stirred can be calmed and broken for my regard through it all through it all my eyes are
not this last song, but the song before it, we, we started to sing a frame. Oh, you don't have to sit down, Gary. You guys can stand if you want. We started singing this frame, It is well with my soul. <laughs> and, and I feel like for some of us, we can say that with confidence in spite of all of the craziness around us. It is well with our souls. But I think for some of us, perhaps, this morning, that was more of a cry of, God, make this be true of me. Or maybe it was just an outright lie. Like, you're just singing it, but you're not actually thinking it. It is not well with your soul. And I just, for a moment, I would like to take a moment to pray for those of us in this room and those of us at home for whom this time it is not well with your soul. And if you're honest, you want to trust God. You want to keep your eyes fixed on Him, but it feels like you just keep getting distracted by the wind and the waves and you are sinking. And if that's you, would you just take the courageous step to, to slip your hand up for a moment? Yeah, thank you. You're in good company. And those of you at home who raised your hand, thank you for being interactive. Um, I want to take a moment to pray for us. So if, if you just raise your hand, would you please stand up for a moment? Join me in standing. And if there's somebody that, that you saw that slipped a hand up, would you either place a hand on their shoulder in an appropriate manner or just extend a hand if you're more comfortable with that? Can we just surround our family right now? You don't know, need to know the details. God already does. Let's take a moment to pray for our family right now. This is how we love one another. Let's just pray out loud all at once. God can make sense of it all. Just go ahead and pray for our Father's peace. Holy Spirit, we believe you can do this. Won't you bring peace to my brothers and my sisters? The things that they need to know that you have for them. Holy Spirit, bring Father God, you are intimately familiar with all that we carry in our hearts right now. The stuff we're proud of, the stuff that we're willing to kind of post on social media, and the stuff that we're not. And that area in our life right now where we just feel overwhelmed, where we feel discouraged, where we feel like the, the rocks that are in front of us are too big for us to deal with. They are. They really are, but they're not too big for you to deal with. And Father, we acknowledge that it's easy to become distracted by the winds and the waves of this world. And so right now I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would comfort my brothers and my sisters and even my heart as we look at the state of our world and we look at the state of our fractured society and we look at the state of your bride, the church, 
who you have called to be a reflection of your heart in the same way that the Son was a reflection of the Father's heart. We pray that you would help us to reflect your heart in this world, and we confess that we haven't done a very good job of that. Father, we, we begin this morning by laying down the things that have been a burden in our hearts, not because they don't matter, but because they matter so dang much. We bring them to the only one who can make sense of them and can redeem them. I lift up Asher, that you would make sense of this childhood diabetes diagnosis and the ways it's going to impact his life. I pray that you would glorify yourself in that. I lift up Jeff's grandson who was born so prematurely and pray, Father, that you would redeem that as, you, as we got to hear last week that you did. Father God, I pray that you would make sense of and use, redeem the, the pain and the, the destruction going on in Afghanistan right now. Would you be in the midst of it? Your image bearers are suffering and I pray that you would redeem it as only you can. Father, would you be in the midst of our hearts as we leave this place? Church doesn't end when we walk out of here. We are the church. So as we go, may we keep our eyes fixed on you and may you fill our hearts with love for some very unlovable people that we're going to interact with. Some of them might be in the car on our ride home. Give us love for them. Some of them might be waiting at home for us. Some of them might just be meeting along the way. We thank you that you love us. And we pray that you would make us a conduit of that love into this world because we desperately need it. May the cry of our mouth that it is well with my soul be true as only you can make it. So go with us as we leave, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. I look forward I look forward to spending some time with many of you this week, whether it be on the boat or on Friday at our, um, our beach bonfire or on Saturday, guys, at our men's breakfast. If there's prayer requests that we can be carrying with you, you can drop them in the back or you can email them to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. If you want to give, you can drop those in the back or you can give them online from, at, from our website. I love you. Have a wonderful week.